Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. It was good. Amen. Okay, so this morning I want to, I just have on my heart, and I think I'm going to continue next week also to share some things. Last week, the title of the message was Alpha and Omega, and we've been touching on some things related to wisdom. And this week, I want to continue talking about wisdom. We're going to read a lot of verses out of the Bible. I don't think it'll take a lot of time, but we are going to look at a lot of verses in the book of Proverbs. And um, that's okay, because at church, that's what you do is read the Bible. And um, the title of today's message is Wisdom is Vindicated by Her Works. And that comes from a statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 11 that we'll get to uh, here in just a little in just a little bit. So when we see this statement made by Jesus in Matthew 11, it says, "Wisdom is vindicated by her works." And in Luke 11, it says, "Wisdom is vindicated by her children." And in some versions of the Bible, you may see in Matthew chapter 11, it also says, "Wisdom is vindicated by her children." And that has to do with with ancient texts, and they they differ on this one place in Matthew 11, but not in Luke 11. So it seems that Jesus, and, and this works perfect, that he made the statement twice. In one place he said that wisdom, wisdom is vindicated by her children, and in another, wisdom is vindicated by her works. And as we will see, that the children of wisdom are her works. That what wisdom does, that's what she produces, and these are her children. We're, those are going to be important understandings as we go into this. So we're going to start with a verse from Colossians chapter 3. And um, if you want to open that, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23. And we're going to be talking about what wisdom does and how wisdom works. And what it means to be lazy. And... In understanding what it means to be lazy from the book of Proverbs, it'll give us a clear indication of what it means to be wise. One of the things I want you to understand this morning is that the opposite of wisdom is not stupidity. The opposite of wisdom is laziness. That if you, do, if you lack wisdom in your life, James says that you need to ask God for wisdom and he will give it to you. But you need to ask in faith and that faith works. Faith without works is dead. And many times people are lacking always people. And, and when I say people, I'm, I'm talking to Christians this morning, okay? And I'm really sharing some things that the Lord has been speaking to me for my life. That if we lack wisdom, oftentimes, uh, most often, it's because we're not asking God for wisdom. And if we are asking God for wisdom, we're not asking him in faith. And we say, well, I believe and I'm asking him, but we're not doing the things that he's given us to do that are right before our eyes. And so it's like trying to steer a car. If you're trying to steer a car that's not moving, it can be difficult to steer that car and you can turn the wheels, but you're not really steering it. You're just turning the wheels in place. Uh, a car needs to be moving in order for you to be able to steer it, right? And so we have to be in, in movement. We have to be doing something. 
And in Colossians chapter 3, and in verse 23, we read, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So I'm reading this from the New American Standard, and it says, do your work heartily. Uh, Other translations would probably better say, do your work from the heart. And the original Greek, it says, do your work from the soul. Put your heart and soul into your work. Okay? And what kind of work is it talking about? Well, it says, whatever you do. So if you're washing dishes, if you're fixing a car, if you're killing weeds, if you're mowing a lawn, whatever you're doing in your life, whatever you do, do not miss the opportunity to do that work unto the Lord. Don't miss out on your reward. Put your heart and your soul into that work. To put your soul, to do it from your soul means think about what you're doing. Do it the way that God wants you to do it. Do the works of the Lord and do them with wisdom because this is wisdom, that whatever you do, that you do it from all of your heart. And then it says, as for the Lord, rather than for men. So you're not doing it because men are giving you a reward. Well, I'm not going to do that if nobody pays me. Okay, then you've missed out on your reward. Jesus said that uh, to the Pharisees that they they love to stand on the street corners and do their prayers out loud so that people will see them and men will see what they're doing. They love to give their offering, give their alms in a way that other people will see what they're doing and how much they're giving because they're doing it for men. And Jesus said, well, that praise that you get from men, that is your reward and there's nothing left for you to get in heaven. You've received your reward in full on this earth. So if we do our work only to get the paycheck, if we do our work Only when men are watching, and we do that as men pleasers, we do it as what the Bible calls eye service, to please the eyes of another person, then we actually are not doing that work uh, from our heart. And, And when we work from our heart, then we do it as unto the Lord. We care about the little details that only God sees, and nobody else will ever even see them or know about them. Do it as for the Lord rather than for men. And again... Let me underscore that this says, whatever you do, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So actually in the context, Paul is writing to slaves that are actually enslaved and they can't get out of the situation that they are in in life but they go to church they're christians and he's saying to them whatever you do if you want to walk in freedom then don't be a slave on the inside you may be a slave on the outside you know some people many people are locked into a job that they maybe don't really enjoy and even if you just love your job there's parts of that job that you don't like that's just the way it is there's always things that we have to do that we don't like doing right and so what he's saying to them is even though you do not have freedom to choose where you're going to live or what you're going to do you never you never lose your freedom on the inside if you're doing it unto the lord you're always in command of your own soul you're always in command of your own heart And if you'll do these things as unto the Lord and not unto men, 
then you will walk in freedom even if you are a slave. So that's Colossians chapter 3. Now go with me over to Matthew chapter 28. And these are verses everybody knows, but let's look at them together. It's the Great Commission uh, as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, we begin reading with verse 16. Matthew 28, 16, it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Well, let me draw your attention to that first, that there are no longer twelve disciples, because Judas is a, a traitor, and he's already gone out and hanged himself. And there are 11 disciples now. So the numbers have dwindled by one. And they go out to see Jesus at the mountain. And they actually see Jesus, right? He's resurrected from the dead. He's already shown himself to them several times. And, and you know the story of Thomas and how he said, you know, place your, 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 your finger in these, the holes and the wounds that are in my arms and thrust your hand into my side. And, and yet they still doubt, Notice that it says some of them were doubtful. So they're worshiping Jesus, but some of them are doubtful. That's a description of our real life. Okay? We have moments, we're, we're actually pretty complicated people. We can be in church worshiping Jesus, and on our face it just looks like we're just so full of faith, but in our mind we're thinking of all these problems and we're worried about stuff and we're full of doubt. And the more we... we, we understand ourselves the more we understand that we have moments of faith and we have moments of doubt where we really feel faith and then moments where we really feel doubt but the difference of what real faith is real faith just does what God has said to do even when it doesn't feel like doing it it just just suck it up and do what God said to do that's what faith is so some of them are doubtful and Jesus comes and he speaks to them and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go you therefore. So he says to them, The Father has given me all authority on heaven and on earth. It's very important for us to understand that Jesus says to them that I have authority over death. I have authority over Satan. I have authority over every enemy that could possibly ever come against you in this life i have been given authority over every enemy on this earth over every government on the this earth there's no president there's no king who is higher than i am my authority exceeds all the authority that could be on this earth and now take this authority he says go ye therefore he's giving them a charge he's giving them a great commission and he's saying, go in my authority. You don't go in your authority. You go in my authority. Go ye therefore. And then he tells them to do something. He says, make disciples of all the nations. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so he ends it up by saying, and I'm, and I'm going to be by your side the entire time. So he leaves us without any excuses. Because we know what our job is. He's given us a job. We know what the vision and purpose for Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship is. 
whether the pastor ever formulated a vision or not, cast a vision or whatever else you want to say, whether we had a vision statement or anything like that, this is our vision, this is our purpose, because this is the job we are supposed to do. And I'll be very honest with you that we become very lazy in that job. We make many excuses for why we can't do what God has commanded us to do. Well, we don't have enough money to do this. Or we don't have enough time to do this. Or don't you understand there's a pandemic? Or don't you know there's a war? Or don't you know AI is taking over the world? Or some other thing. There's always some reason why we're not going to do what God has called us to do. And we're like little children. Every parent knows what it's like with little children. When there's something that's supposed to be done, there's some reason why they can't do that right then. Unless it's something they like doing, right? It's always, wait a minute, just a minute. Uh, why, did, why do I have to do it? Why doesn't she do it? Why do I have to do it? Why doesn't he do it? You know, all of these excuses. And I think God has blessed us with being able to see that in the lives of children so that maybe we can see it in our own lives before God. Because we're like children before God. And he's given us a very simple job to do. Just go and make disciples of all nations. Well, I don't know anybody that needs to be a disciple. Really? You're surrounded with people just in this town that absolutely do not know the Bible. They do not know Jesus. They do not understand anything about God's plan for their life. Well, how can I make a disciple? I'm not a pastor. Well, he didn't say that this is a job for the pastors. He didn't say this is a job for the evangelist or the prophet or the apostle or the teacher. In fact, the job for the fivefold ministry, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is simply to equip you, the church member, the Christian, the body of Christ, with the word of God so that you can go and make the disciples. If, if I'm involved in making disciples, it's not because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a Christian. That that's what God's job that he's given us to do is. What is parenting? Parenting is first and foremost making our children disciples of Jesus Christ. By teaching them to observe the things that Jesus has commanded. And we do not teach them by words only. We teach them by our actions. We teach them by our behavior. We teach them by an example. I had wonderful parents. I really was blessed with really good parents. And that's ju just a blessing. Nobody chooses a family that they're going to be born into. You know, and, and I don't know how it happens. You know, m my father did not have good parents. Um, you know, okay parents, but they had a lot of tragedy and a lot of problems in their life. And it took him many years before he came to know Jesus Christ. But I was blessed to be born in a Christian family with, with parents that truly loved the Lord, and they actually really, really loved us. Well, my mom preached to us day and night. I mean, my mom preached to us all the time. My grandma preached to us. My great-grandma preached to us. It was all the women. They were always preaching to us. My father was kind of a man of, of few words, you know, but he, he would share the Word of God with us too. And we were in church every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night. I mean, I heard a million sermons in my life. And I'm being very honest with you. I could, I could hardly remember. I, mean, I can remember a few things. I can hardly remember any exact quotes from my mom, for example, of what she said. But I remember everything that she did. I remember how she loved us. I remember how she accepted us. 
I remember how she and my father, in their own different ways, uh, uh, disciplined us and raised us to respect God, to respect each other, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and I remember that in a million different ways. I could give you examples all day long. So we don't teach our children. I mean, the words were important. They just don't remember all those words. They remember the example that, that, that cements those words into your heart. You know? and, and so we have this job. And if, if, you, if you can't ever even get outside of your own house, well, you've already got people that need to be made disciples. But beyond that, he says that you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And so we need to expand our vision to take the gospel to people today because these are the last days and Jesus is coming back soon. And he says, I'll always be with you to the end of the age. So we have no excuses. We have the authority. Uh, you know, the pandemic and the wars and the rumors of wars and earthquakes and and uh, 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 tropical storms coming in or what flooding, nothing can stop the power of Jesus Christ. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he said that he will be with us until the end of the age. Now go with me over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to spend some time in what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes a little bit here and then in Proverbs. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning with verse 10. This is a Bible verse that I learned by memory when I was in Sunday school as a kid because we had to repeat it all the time. Maybe you've never heard it before, but it's a great verse. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's exactly the same thing that Paul is saying in Colossians. Whatever you do, do your work from the heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, as to the Lord and not to men. Whatever you do. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Well, again, I, I just need to qualify this. We're not talking about doing evil works, are we? I mean, that we're speaking about doing the work of the Lord, okay? But the work of the Lord is, 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 uh, is there's, there's a multitude of works that, that are the works of the Lord, and many of the things are things that we don't pay any attention to. You know, because we think of the work of the Lord as being, you know, preaching and teaching or, or you know, going on a mission trip and, and taking humanitarian aid to people or, or doing something like this. But when you think about it, all the big things are nothing more than just the sum of a million little things that are done faithfully. Okay? The work of the Lord consists in a million little details that are done faithfully. Whatever you do, do it from all of your heart. And here Solomon says in the wisdom that God gave him, that he asked for, and God gave him that wisdom, that whatever your hand finds to do. You know, there's really no reason for a Christian to ever be bored. Boredom is something that happens to children, okay? 
I don't even remember the last time I was bored. I wish I could be bored, okay? But there's always something that needs to be done. I do remember when I was a kid saying all the time that stupid phrase, I'm bored, I'm bored. What are we going to do now? I'm bored. You know, but that's, that's normal when you're a kid. But there's no reason to be bored. There's so much to do in the kingdom of God. Well, I don't know what to do. I'm waiting for the pastor to tell me what to do. Well, it says whatever your hand finds to do. Why do you need somebody to tell you what to do? If your hand finds something to do. You know, I remember uh, uh, Pastor Gene, we read that little quote there from him there, and, and I did have the privilege of meeting him right before he, he passed away. But, but I knew his wife, Edna, much better because I spent some more time uh, with her. Well, Jeannie, of course, knew her really well because she was raised by her. But I remember coming to Night of Light, and this was like, I don't know, Sasha was a little girl, and we were visiting here, so maybe, well, she's 17 now. She just turned 17, by the way, Friday. Happy birthday, Sasha. <laughs> and um, so this, was, this might have been 15 years ago. And we were visiting Yarrington. We were, and it happened to be at the time of Night of Light, so we went to Night of Light. And, and Grandma Chisholm, as we called her, uh, is just walking around this parking lot. There's thousands of people, hundreds at least, people out there. And, and just like this little old lady walking around picking up every little tiny piece of trash and collecting them and taking them to the trash can. She's just all over the place. And all she's doing is picking them. Now, now I knew who she was. You know, that she's the you know, mom of the pastor and the wife of the founding pastor and all these kinds of things. And, 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 but if you didn't know who she was, you would have never guessed that she was somebody in this church. And why is she doing that? Because her hand found something that needed to be done. And so she's doing that with all of her might. She's doing what her hand found to do. So it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now listen to what it says. It says, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Sheol, that's the place of the dead. Okay? So when you die, there will no longer be activity, planning, knowledge, or wisdom. We were talking about this in the car on the way back from Grand Canyon. I don't know why we were talking about this, but something came up talking about some people die rich and some people die poor. And, and the truth is that everybody dies exactly the same. If if you're Elon Musk and you die today, or you're you and you die today, you die exactly the same. You take nothing with you, okay? It makes no difference how much money you have. It makes no difference how much stuff you've accumulated. You will not take one cent with you when you die. And that has never changed and it never will change. But the difference between dying rich and dying poor is what rewards you have in heaven. Some people die rich because they enter into the kingdom of God. And some people die poor because their souls are lost for eternity. It says here that there is no longer a chance. There's no more activity, planning, or knowledge, or wisdom. So if you're going to do something, do it today. If you want to do something, do it now. If you dream of something, get to work on what you're dreaming of. Don't wait. Because there's going to come a day when you cannot do it anymore. Notice the order that we see here, because it's different from what we often think. It says, first of all, activity, 
then planning, then knowledge, then wisdom. Many people are waiting for knowledge and wisdom to come and for there to be a plan before they do anything. But the order here is the exact opposite. First, there's activity. Start doing something. How do you even know what to plan when you haven't even started doing something? If you don't do something, then you don't know what to plan. You know, if two chess masters, grand masters, sat down at a chessboard to play with each other, I guarantee you that they both have a strategy to begin with, okay? But because they are chess masters, they have a thousand strategies you know, stored away in their minds, okay? And if you stuck with the same strategy at the beginning, if you said, this is my strategy, and I'm going to go with this, and I'm going to stay with this all the way to the end of this match, to the end of this game, it doesn't make any difference to me what the, my opponent does, I'm not changing my strategy, then you're going to lose. Because the opponent knows what strategy you're doing. Oh, yes. That's the old John Montero move. I remember that one. You know, wh whatever it's called. I'm, I, I like chess, but I'm not that into it to know the names of all these moves, you know. But, but uh, if, you, if you can't adapt your plan according to what is happening to the reality of the situation on the ground, then you're not a very good general, are you? You're not a very good president, are you? You're not a very good leader of any sort because you cannot adapt your plan. Your plan is set in concrete, and therefore it's no strategy at all. Because as soon as the enemy discovers what you're doing, he knows you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And because you keep doing the same stupid thing over and over again, you're going to lose. Okay? So the first thing that comes is activity. You have to start doing something. Wisdom works. Wisdom is vindicated, is justified by her works. Faith is justified by its works. Faith is known by its works, not by its words. So first comes activity, and then comes planning, and then come knowledge, comes knowledge, and then comes wisdom. But none of those things will be left for us after this life. This is the day that we have. Verse 11 uh, goes on to say, I again saw under the sun that the race, listen to these words, the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Solomon says, like birds, uh, like, like fish that are, that are swimming and they're below the surface and up above there's a fisherman and he's getting ready to put a net down into the water. They have no idea he's getting ready to put a net down into the water. If they knew that, they wouldn't be there, would they? They keep moving away from the fishermen, but they don't know when that net is going to come down. And so he says it is with our lives. He talks about two things here. He talks about time and he talks about chance. Wisdom knows the timing of God and wisdom understands what chance is. We don't like to talk about chance, right? You know, because that doesn't sound very Christian. 
but it's just a fact of the world we live in. Whatever word you want to call it, things just happen, don't they? People use bad words and put that as a bumper sticker on their car. Things just happen to us, and you don't know when they're going to happen. And when they happen, you immediately want to find out whose fault is this, right? You want to blame somebody. Or maybe this is my fault because I didn't give my tithe this week and that's why this happened. Or this is my fault because I got in a fight with my spouse the other day and now God's punishing me. And we're always looking for something and it turns into us just trying to find an excuse to not deal with what happened. Things just happen in life. And so wisdom is prepared for chance. Wisdom is prepared for things that go wrong. Okay? Because things do go wrong. And if we trust God, we know that he causes all these things to work together for our good. Because we love him and because we're called according to his purpose. We live in a world that is enslaved to sin. We live in a world of, that has fallen. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So things just go wrong in this world. But we are in this world, but Jesus said we are not of this world. And so we walk according to a higher authority and according to a higher power. Time and chance. Look at chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. Time and chance in verse 1. And remember, I'm not talking here about how to make a bunch of money. I'm not talking here about how to be successful at something that you want to do in life. That all applies. But I'm really talking about this great commission, what God has called us to do, the job that he's given us to do. In verse, verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, and you will find it after many days. Well, before I go on, let me explain that. Because when I was a kid, we had a song. And I can't remember who sang it. It was one of those contemporary Christian songs that we would sing when I was growing up in the 70s and kind of had that little hippie tune to it. And it was something about casting your bread on the waters. So I heard this verse a lot, but I always thought of when we went to feed the swans uh, at, at Utica Square in Tulsa because we would always go there after the dentist appointment and throwing little breadcrumbs out on the water. That's not what it's talking about, okay? When it says bread, it's talking about grain. It's talking about wheat. It's talking about barley. And to cast your bread on the waters means to load it up in ships and send it out from your port to sell that grain at other ports uh, around the world. Okay? This has been in the news a lot with this grain deal with Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, all, all this kind of stuff. And, and it's a big deal because if the bread doesn't go out, if the grain doesn't go out, then, then people can starve. And prices go sky high like, like, like they're doing right now. And so it says, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. Notice that the waters are plural. In other words, don't just send your, your grain deal to only one customer. Get as many customers as you can. You know, what does a person do that works in sales? He's on the phone all day long. He's meeting with people to get clients for that company, to get customers. Because somebody is a paying customer today, and tomorrow he's not. So you've got to have somebody else that's ready to step into that place, right? I mean, that's how sales works. So cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Well, when we look at the Great Commission, don't 
Stop preaching the Word of God. Don't stop sharing the Word of God. We were talking about raising children. Find creative ways to share the Word of God with your children. Don't ever let a day go by that you're not always bringing it back to the Gospel. You're not always bringing it back to Jesus. That you pray together with your children. You know, that you're sharing these things with them. Why in the Old Testament, it even said... That whatever you're doing, wherever you're walking with your kids, you know, when you're working with your hands and they're there helping you with something, always find the moment where you can speak these words to your children and share these with your children. Because it's not going to happen in a classroom setting. Okay? It's not going to be like every Sunday, I'm going to take you to Sunday school and they're going to teach you. And then during the week, we're going to live like hell around here. You know, it's, it's just not going to work. It never has worked. It never will work. But if you live that life together, and when hell happens, you ask forgiveness together, 1 John 1, 9, then you actually teach your children that none of us are perfect, and we need to ask forgiveness when we sin. But God is merciful, and He will forgive us, and He will restore us, and He will bless us. Right? And so, cast your bread on the waters, and it will come back to you. You will find it after many days. So you need patience. It's not going to happen overnight. But after many days, you will find that bread. He says, divide your portion to seven or even to eight. For you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. And this is the same understanding in chapter 9. It doesn't sound so Christian, does it? But it's real life. You don't know chance. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what misfortune is going to befall you on this earth. So he says, divide your portion to seven or even to eight. We say it like this. Don't put your eggs all in one basket. Because you trip, you fall, and you lost all your eggs, didn't you? Because not one of them is going to be left unbroken when that basket falls. They're all going to be ruined. So divide it to seven. Divide it to eight. And then he says, if the clouds are full... They pour out rain upon the earth. Wow, that's ingenious, Solomon. Thank you for telling me that. I had no idea. Now this one gets even better. Whether a tree falls towards the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Is that not deep? It's deep wisdom. You may wonder, why is verse 3 there? Here's what verse 3 is saying. Hey, dummies. <laughs> Don't you know this stuff? When a tree falls, it lies in that spot. You know, if you don't understand, go to the Big Trees uh, State Park in California, over there by Arnold, where Pete and Judy go quite often. And go over there. And it's like their timeshare place, and it's beautiful. Okay? Go to Big Trees Park, and you're going to see trees that have been lying there, they think, for thousands of years. You know, they're just huge, gigantic sequoias at least hundreds of years. They don't move. They're just lying there. Wherever they fell, that's where they lie. When the clouds, you know, you know when it's going to rain, when the clouds are full, it's, it's going to start raining. You don't have to have a weather app to know these things. And so it is. What, the reason why verse 3 is there is to say, if you understand that stuff, then why can't you figure out that you shouldn't put all your eggs into one basket? Why can't you understand that you need to cast your bread upon the water so that it will come back to you someday? In other words, why do you think you're going to get rich when you're not doing anything? Why do you think people are going to get saved when you're not preaching the gospel? 
Why do you think that the Lord added unto their number in the book of Acts means that it just magically happened? It didn't magically happen. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to preach the word of God. They began to go out into the streets and to share the gospel with people. That's the mechanics of how the Lord added unto their number. Okay, Things don't just magically happen. We have to work, and wisdom works. So it says in verse 4, He who watches the wind will not sow, you know, not plant, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. You don't know what's going to grow. You don't know when it's going to work better. So sow the seed in the morning, sow the seed in the evening. Well, getting back to the example of, of raising kids, but this is really true with all evangelism. And raising kids is evangelism. Making them disciples. I heard many, many years ago at a conference I was at, and this like back in the 80s, I think, and the, the guy was teaching on family stuff. It, it was really, really good. I remember a lot of it. And raising children, educating them and things, and that was back when my big Stephen was just a little tiny guy, and I was really interested in things he was saying. I remember something that he said. He said, everybody's talking about quality time with their children. And he said, there's no such thing as quality time. There's only quantity time. Because you have no idea when quality will happen. You don't know the moment when suddenly your son's heart opens and you can pour into him. You know, because most of the time he's just like, I'm playing my video games, I want to do my this, I want to do my that. But suddenly his heart opens and you can pour into that heart. That quality moment only happens if you spend quantity time with your children. If you do not spend time with them, if you say, well, I'm going to sow on Sundays my seed, then you're going to miss every other day of the week. And maybe nothing is ever going to grow in their lives. But if you'll sow your seed in the morning and you'll sow your seed in the evening, you know, you may feel like I'm sowing seed that's not growing. This is a real pain. Nothing's working here. Well, even Jesus talking about in his parable about Jesus' own uh, uh, ministry. He said, you know, that the sower goes out to sow the word. He's sowing seed. And part of it falls, you know, three-fourths of it falls on ground that does not produce fruit eventually. Some of it does at first, and then it doesn't. Some of it doesn't at all. It's on the hard ground. Only one-fourth of it actually produces fruit. And that's for Jesus. So you don't get discouraged. You know, if something grows, then, then it's going to be good. It's going to be really, really good. But we don't know always the time. We don't know always uh, how chance works. We don't know what kind of things may befall us on this earth. And so we have to constantly be at work, sowing seed. You know, when God created the heavens and the earth, he made a special garden. And in that special garden, he put Adam and, and he made Eve from his rib. And they were married and they lived in that garden. And there was no sin. This is before the fall. And even before the fall, 
After the fall, God said to him, now it's going to be really hard to work. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. You're going to you know, get old. Your knees and your elbows are going to hurt. And it's going to be a real pain for you to do this work now. But before the fall, they still worked. And God said to them that you need to care for this garden. That you need to work in this garden. Because here's the truth. Nature, all of nature, loves it when we are employed in making nature more beautiful. Okay? You know, I can promise you that horses that live with people that care about them and love them, like Sherry, <laughs> that they're much happier than Mustangs. I know everybody thinks, oh, those Mustangs, they're so happy. Man, I was looking at those donkeys, those wild donkeys driving up here, and I got to thinking, what are they doing all day? I mean, they're, they're not, they weren't wild originally, they just ended up being wild donkeys, right? They came west to help somebody, to work with somebody, somebody loved them, somebody cared about them, somehow somebody got loose or something happened and they got wild donkeys everywhere. All they're doing all day is walking through this scrub brush that's completely trying to find a drop of water and, and a little bit of food. And I think they're really mad all the time. And they're just so cute, but I don't want to approach them. I think they'd kick me for sure or bite me, you know, because they're wild. And wild is not happy, okay? And, and so God has given us a job to do. And we need to do that job the way that he's called us to do it. And, and, and if we don't sow our seed, then nothing will ever grow. But if we do sow our seed, we're guaranteed that something, at least something, is going to grow. But we make excuses. Go with me over to uh, the book of Proverbs. So I, there are a lot of places in Proverbs that talk about a sluggard. A sluggard is a lazy person. Depending on what version of the Bible you have, it might say the lazy man or the sluggard. And I, I want to just look at those. I'm going to look at some characteristics of a sluggard so that we can compare ourselves to this and say, I don't want to be like this. Remember that... The sluggard is the opposite of the wise man. The sluggard is the opposite of the righteous man. That laziness is actually a, a, a deadly sin. And in Proverbs chapter 6, we'll start here, Proverbs 6, verse 6. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard, and observe her ways and be wise. Well, Shalene told us on this trip that Todd does not like it will not allow her to have the extermination service kill the ants that are outside his house. And I said, why? Because he likes to sit there and watch the ants and study how, the, how they work. And I thought, well, he's pretty successful in life, so that must be a good idea. Well, it says it right there. If you're a sluggard today, you don't have to go to a special school to learn to not be lazy anymore. Just go outside and find an anthill. They're all over the place. Watch the ants. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard, and observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come in like a vagabond like a highwayman, and your need like an armed man. So the first thing I want to uh, point out to you is that a sluggard, a lazy person, we have this image of somebody that's lazy, and it's, it's not me, right? You know, I mean, everybody says, that, well, that's not me. 
okay? But I want us to see God's image of laziness because maybe we can find that laziness in ourselves and get rid of it. A sluggard is a man-pleaser. He will not work unless someone orders him to work and somebody rewards him to work. He says, go to the ant and look at how they work. There's nobody telling them what to do. They don't have a boss, and there's no reward for their labor. They're just working. And he says, and if that's true for those little tiny ants, you do have a boss, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does give you a reward. But a sluggard is somebody who will not work, he will not even get out of bed unless he has to work, unless somebody is watching him, unless somebody tells him what to do. So many people come to church year after year after year, and they'll never be involved unless somebody makes them be involved because it's always somebody else's job to do it. I'm here to be fed. But that's not what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. We don't come to be fed only. We come to share our food with one another. We come to, to bring something for others. In 1 Corinthians it says, every one of you can come with a word of encouragement, with a prophetic word to share with other people. We come to give our hearts to each other and to share with one another. So the sluggard is a man pleaser. He only works when somebody is looking. Then look at Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 26. It says, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. So a sluggard, a lazy man, is a constant irritant to his boss and to all of his co-workers. Everyone who works with a lazy person is constantly irritated by that person's laziness, but you can't get rid of them. You can't do anything about it because they always do just enough right at that moment when you're going to kick them out, when you're going to fire them, then you realize then they come on strong and they do just enough just to you know, meet that level where there's really no reason to fire them, but they just keep hanging around there. Well, we got to sit around a lot of campfires this week. And everybody knows what it's like when you're sitting around a campfire, that smoke goes in the direction, you're all around that campfire, and that smoke goes at one person, right? And it's an irritant to your eyes. Well, in Russia, they do this. They say, kudafiga tudadim, which means, well, it doesn't matter what it means. And, and when you do that, then it sends the smoke to the other person. Whether that really works or not, I don't know. So we taught that to Shalene. So Shalene, she'll say it wrong, I'm sure, but she'll come back here doing that. But, um, you know, it's this whole thing. The smoke gets in your eyes. Everybody knows what the, that's like. I don't know if you know what it's like, what vinegar to your teeth are, is, because we have really weak vinegar in America. In Russia, you can buy 70% vinegar that hasn't been watered down. And one time, just because I read that verse, I wanted to see what that was like. Do not try that. <laughs> That is really stupid. I mean, it's just like putting acid in your mouth. I thought I was going to die. But it's like going to wear the enamel off of your teeth. So it's a constant irritant to the coworkers, to the boss. It's a person who's a bad apple that spoils the work of everybody else. But you can't seem to get rid of him. He clouds the vision of those he works with. Then look with me at Proverbs chapter 13. Verse 4, in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4, it says, The soul of the slug, sluggard craves, or he desires, 
but he gets nothing. But the soul of the diligent is made fat. And then look at verse chapter 21. Chapter 21 and verse 25. Chapter 21, 25, it says, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. So a sluggard is a man who has great desires. When you listen to him, or you listen to her, and, and this person is speaking, then you might hear this great vision. You might hear about all these grandiose things and everything they want to do. And, you know, and we, 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 we make such an emphasis on that today. And I think it's because we live lives vicariously. We're always watching something on TV. We're always seeing something in a movie. We're always seeing something in the Internet. So what something looks like or sounds like is really important. It's really weighty for us. What it actually is doesn't always matter. Okay? And so we fall into this trap where we want to put on a good face. We want to look good. We want to have this big vision. Well, a sluggard has a vision. He has a desire. But he doesn't do anything about that vision. And because he doesn't do anything, it says that his desire kills him. Because day after day, month after month, year after year, he keeps talking about it. He keeps looking at it. He keeps desiring it, but he never attains it because he never starts doing something to get it. And so eventually it eats him like a cancer on the inside. Physically and spiritually, the desire actually destroys him. We have a nation, we have a people today that are enslaved to desires. They desire a happy marriage, but they're addicted to pornography, for example. This thing or that thing, filled with desires, lusts, but none of those things ever achieve what it is you really want. What you really want is happiness in your marriage. What you really want is peace in your home. What you really want is prosperity in your life. And the world knows what we're addicted to. And so it's always selling these things to us. And, and at the very bottom of it, couldn't a part of it just be, couldn't the whole of it just be that we're too lazy just to get up and start doing what the Bible says? Just do what God says. Laziness is not a disease. Laziness is a sin. And all you have to do is say, God, forgive me for my sin of not doing what you told me to do. And from this moment, I'm going to begin to actually do it. Not next Sunday, not next month, but today, I'm going to start doing the thing that's before me. Whatever my hand finds to do. It may not be very much, but I'm going to be faithful in this one little thing. Because you said if I'll be faithful in something that's little, then you'll make me the ruler over something that's really big, the ruler over much. So a sluggard desires much, but he refuses to work to achieve his desires. And because of this, he has nothing to give to other people. Notice that it says that, that, that the, uh, uh, it says, uh, I lost the place. It says that the, right, that the righteous person, where is that place? Chapter 21, verse 25. I went back there. It says that the, uh, uh, all day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. So 
he'd like to be a giver, but he can't be a giver because he doesn't have anything to give. And because he's not sowing, he's not reaping, and he can't break that cycle. And the only way to break that cycle is start doing something. You know, I've had people, heard people say, well, you know, the Bible talks about, and in church they talk about tithing. And I can't tithe. I don't have enough money to tithe. And honestly, as a pastor, I've always said to people, then don't tithe. Start with something. If you can set a goal to give 1% of your income, then just do that. And you will see that as God, God will begin to prosper you with some tiny obedience. Find some tiny way to be obedient to God at least. And then as your faith grows, you'll see that you can do more. And you won't stop with 10%. You'll start giving 50%. You'll start giving 70%. Because God will bless you and make you rich as you obey his word. But if you wait until you can be you know, as obedient as that guy is or that guy is, then you'll never do anything. Don't give yourself an excuse not to act, not to do something. Now look at me at chapter 15 and verse 19. Chapter 15 of Proverbs in verse 19. In 15:19 it says, The way of the lazy is as a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. So a sluggard is a man whose path is encumbered with weeds and thorns. Do we know anything about that this summer? Why are there weeds and thorns all over his yard? Because when it w they were small, he did not pull them or spray Roundup on them or whatever he was supposed to do. Or he did it once, but he didn't just keep going back. It is a battle to fight weeds and thorns, isn't it? And we know a lot about that this summer. They knew a lot about it back then. And he says that a sluggard, his path is overgrown with weeds. It's overgrown with thorns. And I personally have these gigantic weeds behind our house at the very place where we walk our dog. And there's just this corridor left between those weeds. Okay? And I have nothing to mow them down with, so I'm not a sluggard. They, and it's not my land. And somebody would probably scream at me if I did mow them down because it says stay off and everything. I, I, I don't know. But I wish somebody would mow them down. Because every time the dog goes in there to chase a little cottontail or a quail or something else, he comes out just stuck all over with all this junk that i got to pick off of him. we got to comb it off of him. And you cannot, you literally cannot walk through those weeds. It's just too much. It's too thick. So the sluggard, his path has been blocked up. His path has been stopped. He can't move forward. He's stuck where he is. And the reason why is because he didn't do anything to keep his path open. But for the righteous man, remember the sluggard is the opposite of the righteous man. The sluggard is the opposite of the wise man. The righteous man has a highway in front of him. Is that, oh, God just blessed him with a highway. And here's the sluggard. He said, why, well, all, it's always easy for him. Look at that highway he walks on. I've got all these weeds down here. He has the same weeds. He's just out there taking care of the weeds and keeping the highway open. And you're not doing it. Well, what am I supposed to do? Get up, take a machete, and start hacking some of those things down. Do something. And start making a way. It might take you years to get a path open. It probably won't. It'll probably be a lot faster than you think. 
But if you don't start doing something, you'll never open that path. You'll never open that way. Jesus said, knock and the door will be open to you. You've got to send out applications. You've got to knock on the door. You've got to let them know who you are, that you want to be out there on the field playing in that game. I remember somewhere in elementary school when my dad would tell us, he'd say to us, you know, I want that coach to get you out on the field more. Because you've got 100 kids and everybody's got to play. You're supposed to have equal time. And I said, yeah, well, I, there's nothing I can do about it, Dad. He goes, yeah, it is. Go up and tell the coach you want in. And my dad would make us go tell the coach, like before the game, you got our guy with her, tell the coach you want in there. And you know what? It actually worked. When the coach was reminded that you existed and that you actually wanted to play, he was like, all right, get in there, Webster. You know, get in there. And, and that was how you got to play. That was how you got to take part in it. You know, if you wanted to be in the school play, didn't you have to try out? You couldn't just say, oh, I'm the greatest actor in this entire school. They got to know that. They got to just pick me. They're not going to just pick you. You have to do something. You knock and the door will be open to you. So if there are weeds on your path that are encumbering you, start getting rid of them. Don't wait for God to get rid of them for you. Do something. Okay? And then it says in chapter 19, verse 24. Chapter 19, verse 24. It says, the sluggard bur- This is a great one. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. Okay? Remember, they're eating with their hands. They didn't have spoons and forks and all that, right? So we would say the sluggard uh, buries his spoon into the dish, maybe. But the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but will not even bring it back to his mouth. A sluggard is a man who does not follow through. His yes always ends up being a no. He says yes, but he doesn't do it. A righteous man We'll see this in a minute. He might actually say no, but at the end of the day, he's going to do it. He's so lazy, he can't even feed himself because he buried his hand in the dish, but he won't bring it back to his mouth. It's easy to go down. That's just too much effort to come back up. So he doesn't follow through. He doesn't complete the tasks that he begins. In chapter 20 of Proverbs, and in verse 4, it says, The sluggard does not plow after the autumn. So he begs during the harvest and has nothing. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. So, a sluggard is a man who does not have an understanding of time and chance. And he fails to properly plan, and so he's reduced to a life of debt. He has to live in debt all the time. And it's a cycle of debt that he can't break free from. Because he doesn't properly plan. Why does he not properly plan? Well, you might think it's because he's stupid. No, it says he has a plan on the inside. It's not that he's stupid, but he doesn't have an understanding of the time and of the chance. He just doesn't do anything. You have to, if you, you have to draw a plan out from the inside. What the Holy Spirit is putting on the inside of you, what the Word of God is putting on the inside of you, you have to begin to draw that out. You know, we don't draw water out anymore, so we don't understand what it means. We just turn a faucet on and it works. But you start figuring out what it means and how much work it is to have running water in your house when the pipes break, right? Or when the sewer gets all plugged up. Then you remember, oh yeah, this is not such an easy thing just to have running water in your house. 
So it is with a plan. It has to be drawn out. And the only way to draw it out is start doing something. Start working and doing something to fulfill the great commission that God has given us. So we did not plant after the autumn, or we did not plow after the autumn. So when it came time to plant, we couldn't plant because the ground was hard and it was too late to plow then. So when the harvest comes, we have to go into debt and we have to live in that debt. Then it says uh, in chapter 20, uh, verse, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in chapter 22, look at verse chapter 22, and in verse 13, it says, the sluggard says there is a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. I remember one morning a couple of years ago that Terry sent me a text in the morning. This Terry plays the piano up here. It was early in the morning because she works, was working at the school. Be careful when you go to the office today. There's a lion outside. There really actually was a mountain lion walking down this street somewhere. I was like, oh my gosh. So I grabbed the shotgun and put it in the car. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm not going to get eaten by a lion, though, but I've got to go down to the church. And I'm looking all around me. But it didn't stop me from coming to the church. It didn't stop me from doing what, what I needed to do that day. But the, the, the sluggard, he's a man who always has an excuse for not working. It says, he says, there's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. But notice that his excuse is a valid excuse. He always has a valid excuse for not working. Don't give yourself excuses for not doing what God is saying to do. Because that's the hallmark of a lazy person. And remember, laziness is not just relaxing, it's a sin. When you're, when you're lazy, you work ten times harder than you would have worked if you had just done it God's way from the beginning. And everybody knows that that's true. Being lazy isn't about, I just need a break. Being lazy is hard work. It, have you ever watched somebody who's really lazy? It's really hard work to be lazy. And you're like, just get out there and do it. It'd be over. You'd be sitting in your chair, sipping coffee, watching a movie by now. Some, something would be happening already. You'd be having some fruit growing. It's hard work to be in debt. Have any of you ever been in debt that you can't get out of? I have. And it's really hard work to be in debt. That's why I hate debt. If you've ever tasted of it and been in it, you will hate it. You don't want to be living your life in debt. But there's a way out of debt. Well, how do you do that? Well, I don't know. Go listen to Dave Ramsey or somebody. They could probably tell you more stuff than I can tell you. But I can tell you this. It's not going to happen if you don't start doing something. You have to start doing something about it. Because laziness always has an excuse of why I can't do it. We don't have enough money. You know, it's, it's too scary. We're not ready for that yet. When we're ready, then we'll do it. But we'll never do it. And we'll never be ready because we didn't start. Chapter 26 and verse 12. This is the last one out of Proverbs we're going to look at. Chapter 26 and verse 12. It must be pretty important because there's a whole lot about this in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 26 and verse 12. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than there is for him. The sluggard says there is a lion in the road, a lion in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. 
The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. So a sluggard is a person, finally, who's a fool because he thinks himself so wise that he refuses to listen to the wisdom of God's word and do what God says. Those who would give him counsel, there are those who would speak to him with discretion, but because he's wiser in his own eyes, he is a fool. To truly be wise is to understand that we're not wise, that we need God's wisdom. And to have God's wisdom, we need to act according to God's word. Look with me at Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, in verse 11, Jesus is speaking. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So don't give yourself this excuse of, you know, I've only been a Christian for a couple of days, Pastor. You can't expect me to be involved. You can't expect me to do anything. Well, I don't expect anything. But what is God expecting from you? The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. What if God said to you today, you know, I, I want you to sell your house, and he's not going to say this to you, don't worry, but I want you to sell your house, and you're going to live in a tent. And you're going to travel around, and all you're going to eat is locust and wild honey. And you're going to wear rough goat skins and preach to people. Would you be ready for that? Would you be ready to leave the comforts of life to follow God? Well, he said that you're greater than John the Baptist. You know, Abraham refused to move to Sodom. Lot moved to Sodom because his wife really liked the shopping malls there. I mean, she really liked it. She liked it so much that she turned to salt because she refused to actually leave Sodom even when Sodom was burning. But Abraham refused that. It says that he lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He taught his son to live in a tent, and he taught his grandson to live in a tent. When we go camping, I like tent camping. And my kids, I don't want to go to camp. Dad, I don't want to go to tent camping. There's no electricity out there. You know. Well, I know. You've got to learn to live in a tent. Because if you can't learn to do without, you might not survive in the days that are coming. You've got to learn to rough it. You've got to learn to be able to survive. There are certain survival skills you've got to have, and the greatest among all of them is just doing what God says to do. You've got to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and do what He says to do. And trust that He really cares about us. So the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And then He says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. Where it says suffer violence, I won't go into the Greek nuances and explain this to you, but it would be better translated in the middle voice as when the kingdom of heaven is advancing violently. Not that it suffers violence, but that it's, cause, it's violently causing others to suffer. It's on the advance. The kingdom of heaven is moving forward and it cannot be stopped. 
And Yerington Vineyard Fellowship can say, oh, well, we, we can't do this. We don't have them. Blah, 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 blah. We still got all the best toys in the, you know, on the playground here. This is the best church in Yerington anyway. There's no other place. You know, whatever excuses we can come up with for not doing the will of God, for not advancing the kingdom of God, but that doesn't mean the kingdom of God is going to stop moving forward because Jesus is coming back and we will be held accountable before him. And I want to do something with my life. I want to have some gold and some silver and some precious stones. I don't want to be sitting on the sidelines. I want to listen to what my dad tell, told me. I want to be saying to Jesus every day, hey, put me in, coach. I want to get out on the field. I want to play, coach. I'm still here. I may be 80 years old like Moses, but I want to do what you've called me to do. I may be 85 or whatever he was, like uh, Caleb, but I'm going to say I can still take this mountain. The same strength that I had when I was 40, I still have it when I was 85. I'm like Chuck Norris, spiritually anyway. And I can take this mountain. I can do the will of God because as long as I'm alive and I'm breathing on this earth, or I want to be like Jesus, who is 12 years old, he doesn't say, oh, I'm too young to do the will of God. He actually says to his parents, Hey, didn't you know where I would be? You can't stop me from doing the will of God. Well, we didn't want to stop you, son. We just got a little worried because we haven't seen you for three days. And he said, why didn't you know where I'd be? You should have known by now that I'm going to be in, my, in the middle of what my Father God is doing. So there's no age excuse. There's no uh, uh, income bracket excuse. There's no male or female ex excuse. There's no excuse before God. He says that the kingdom of heaven is advancing. And if you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, then you've got to take it violently. You've got to take the proverbial bull by the horns. You've got to say, I'm going to be in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to be doing the will of God. Put me on the field. I want to get to work. That's the vision of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is painting here. He says, if you think John the Baptist was a wild man, because they did, and he was. He's saying the least in my kingdom is a wilder man than John the Baptist ever was. It's a violent thing to be a Christian. It's a battle. It's a war. There is a war going on for the hearts and the souls of people. And if we just sit by and do nothing, they will go to hell. Our own children, our own grandchildren. And it'll be no good saying, oh, you promised me that you, me and all of my house would be saved. We love that promise. We're training up a child in the way he should go and when he's old, blah, 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 blah. But we didn't do anything to train him up. We didn't do anything to preach the gospel to them. How do you think it's just going to magically happen? They're all going to get saved? He said, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. We have the power. We have the authority. We have no excuse. And who wants an excuse? Didn't you sign up for the football team because you wanted to play in the game? So get out on the field. Well, he hasn't put me in. Well, put him in remembrance and say, I want to be on the field. I want to be in the middle of the fray. I want to be in the middle of the battle. I don't want to live my life boring. I want to live this life excited for Jesus. And then Jesus says, 
For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept that John himself is Elijah who was to come, he who has an ear, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then listen to verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. The whole world is a bunch of kids. It's like a giant kindergarten. Okay, that's what Jesus is comparing it to. This is a big kindergarten. And all the kids want you to dance to the music they're dancing to. They want you to sing the songs they're singing. When they're happy, they want you to be happy. When they're sad, they want you to be sad. But you're different, Jesus is saying, because you're children of the kingdom of heaven. It says, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. And then Jesus says the phrase, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds or by her children. In other words, it doesn't matter what they say. What matters is what you do. Because your reward will never come from them anyway. Your reward will come from heaven. So dance to the music God is playing. Sing the songs that he is singing. And just don't listen to all those nutty kids playing their flutes in the kindergarten. You have a call on your life. You have something that's bigger than, the, than, 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 than this world. And this world, as we were talking about at least last week, has completely lost the plot anyway. So why try to fin- follow their story? There's one last place I want to read. And we're going to end with this. It's Matthew chapter 28, 21. And it's a simple little parable that Jesus told. And it goes like this. Matthew 21, 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. Well, if you look at your little side note, if you've got those little notes, it'll say children. Because it doesn't say son in the Greek. Son is huios, and this says technon. A man had two children. We're talking about children. Jesus was talking about children. That wisdom is vindicated by her children. So this man has two kids, two children. And he goes to the first one and he says, in my Bible it says son, but it doesn't say that in the Greek. It says child. It's actually the word used for little children. And that's the parable Jesus is telling. He's not talking about grown sons. He's talking about kids. He says, child, go work today in the vineyard. It's like, child, go mow the yard. And he answered, I will not. Can you imagine a kid talking like that? Well, I can. He just put his foot down. Why do I have to go work in the vineyard? I'm 10 years old. you got men out there working in the vineyard. Why would the dad want him to go work in the vineyard? It's probably not because he's the best worker. Maybe it's because he wants him to learn something. Maybe it's because he wants him to learn that this whole thing is going to belong to you someday. So go put your hand to the plow. Start working in the vineyard. He says, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. And the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, yes, sir. You know, can you imagine a kid being like that? My brother said he wouldn't, but I'm going to do it. You know I'm the best kid in this house. Yes, sir. I will, sir. But he actually did not go. 
And he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, well, the first did. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So which of the two children are we going to be? Yeah, I agree. It would be better to always feel faith and to always say yes, sir, and do yes, sir. But we don't always feel faith. Sometimes we're grumpy. Sometimes things aren't working out right. Sometimes we're filled with doubts like those disciples when they came and they saw Jesus on the mount and he's getting ready to leave them and they still were filled with doubt. But what does it matter what we feel at the end of the day? What matters is what we do because have you ever noticed that doing changes feelings? Have you ever noticed how you can be super depressed or whatever people call it? I don't really get that either. I mean, come on. What are you bored about? What are you depressed about? Maybe it's because you're not doing anything. And you start doing something, and all of a sudden your mood completely changes. Just doing anything. Go build a Lego with your kid. I mean, we don't have any Legos. Go to the store, buy one of those complicated Legos, and put it together with those instructions with your kid, and I guarantee all your problems will go away. Because you'll be so into the, how to build this Lego thing, and you'll become the great engineer, and everything changes. You know, find something to do, and begin to do it. And when you do that, then everything changes. And the gospel begins to be preached. And the kingdom of God grows. We have the power. We have the authority. If you said no to Jesus, but you regret it, then just start saying yes to him now. Because what pleased, what pleased the father was the child who said no, but he went ahead and did it anyway. Because that's really all the father wanted. And there's nothing worse than the child that says yes and just does not do it. That's a stench on the father's nostrils. At least the first child was just honest about his feelings. I don't want to do that, dad. But he did do it. And the reason he did it is because dad said to do it. What better reason do you need than just my dad, my father said to do this? I'm not doing this because I'm the best Christian or because I feel like it's the best thing. But this is what my father told me to do. Let's stand together. Father, I just thank you. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonbeamingfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.